Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. The man with two brains is over. It's time to laugh our craniums off. He's a world-famous brain surgeon. The only time we doctors should accept death is when it's caused by our own incompetence. Ten blade scalpel. Mets and bomb scissors. Mets and bomb scissors. Who wants only one thing in a woman? Let's cat out of here. The perfect mind in the perfect body. Steve Martin's out of control in The Man with Two Brains. She's not right. She's dead. Dead. I better get her to a cemetery right away. The Man with Two Brains. Steve Martin, Man with Two Brains. You've seen this movie. I've seen it, yes. We're talking about it tonight, so I hope I've seen it by now. The series that we're doing on Steve Martin. I am surprised that there is so... There's there's this long-running theme through all the movies that we've talked about. Uh, of Steve Martin desperately wanting to have sex. <laughs> I did not remember that that was like a BC story of all of Steve Martin's early movies. Yeah, who would and have thought? Here it is again. Who would have thought? Right. And then he has sex, apparently, and he does Father of the Bride, where he's had sex. It's like the results. Father of the Bride is the pinnacle of his career because it's children. <laughs> that was the big shift, shift. Parenthood, Father of the Bride, right. Right, Parenthood, Father of the Bride. So it is. It's a major the... <laughs> shift that he takes. Right. Yeah. 
Uh, what'd you think of, of Two Brains? How did, how'd you do with it? Well, okay. So this is one that I thought I had seen. Hmm. So when I was talking about the ones that I had seen and ones I hadn't, this was on my list of ones that I had seen. Now that I've seen it, I realized that it was one of those movies that I think was on HBO a lot when I was a kid Mm -hmm. that I likely saw pieces of because there were some moments that I was like, okay, I definitely remember seeing this here uh, and, and like at certain sequences, but I realized I'd never seen the whole movie. And so it was it was a real experience for me watching it going, wow, this is all new. Like the only stuff that I really remember is some of the stuff toward the end when he's kind of battling Kathleen Turner. And so I ended up um having a uh a really good time with this movie. I wasn't sure if I was going to uh if I was going to like it. At the beginning there was some rough moments the some of the editing was kind of a little choppy uh you know i was i wasn't sure if the comedy was going to strike me but as it continued i found that the comedy was actually working on a pretty good level throughout and consistent as far as uh, jokes that were working and making me laugh and uh steve martin was great kathleen turner was great our surprise voice that we have as uh melmahay was great and all in all, like, I just, I had a lot of fun with this movie. I liked the wackiness, the zaniness, the comedy of it. And it also ended up kind of having some nice heart and a nice little message at the end. So I really ended up liking this one quite a lot. Weirdly, I'm with you. Uh, I, I'm not sure <laughs> what I expected. It was, <laughs> it, you know, I think that I, the, the last few movies that we've done are so, um, uh, they're, I would say much more kind of cerebral comedies. The uh, you know they're they're thinkers, and this the man with two brains is not. Uh, it it maintains, I think, a little bit of the sophistication hidden around the corner, uh, the odd corner in the movie. But generally, it's what I expected of more of the original movies. My memory was essentially the man with two brains tone supplanted on top of those other movies. And so I, I feel like we're back to form with this one, where it's goofy, it's wild and crazy guy, it's funny names, funny accents, it's uh, it's oddball stuff, it's stuff that, uh, it, it's like a absurdist comedy, you know, get that cat out of here, out of our surgical theater, um, like uh, the, the, that he is a leader in his field as a, as a neurosurgeon, and his grand device, and this is one of the things I think is so brilliant about, uh, you know, Steve Martin uh, in, in general, that he he appreciates this kind of stuff that the the conflict between his achievements as a leader in the field in this movie that his grand device is the most simple adaptation you can have a screw top uh <laughs> that that they screw on the the skull and i think that is so funny i think it's just super funny so there are some things in here that that don't work for me as as well as i thought it did his character change to this sort of the brooding igor character at the end his his drive toward madness uh i i'm not as crazy about i i was fine when it was just a romantic story of him trying to trying to save the brain save find the body um but uh, generally i i laughed more than i didn't they 
there were some jokes that they just kept hitting. And I am gratified to say that I got over the hump on almost all of them. The paper walls <laughs> thing, that was dumb fast. And then it got funny again because they just leaned in. <laughs> and, uh, and and so they came, I came around almost every time. I, th- I thought it was definitely, I mean, I, I, I laughed more than seven times. <laughs> well, a sign of true comedy genius. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I think that that's what uh, made me so happy with this film is that it kept this wacky level of comedy up at a pretty high level and a constant level. But there were just so many hits. And I was I was a little worried when it started because I'm like, uh, well, and I. I, I, the the beginning is just rough. I mean, Steve Martin is pretty funny. You kind of get into his character pretty uh, effectively through a, a brain surgery that you see at the beginning and then talking to this reporter. It's the introduction to Kathleen Turner's character, Dolores Benedict, with her uh, her current husband at the beginning of the film and basically her you know, working to kind of kill him so that she can make off with his money, only to realize he changed the will and, you know, he dies anyway. And then and then she kind of flees the scene and gets hit by the car that Steve Martin is driving. All of this, well, the the, the energy with uh, the scene where Dolores is dealing with her husband is kind of at this fevered pitch as that's kind of playing out opposite uh, Steve Martin's character, Hafer, as he's driving and talking to this reporter. And, uh, but then we are intercutting between the two. And the energy of that whole open was just really rough. And it just kind of was jarringly uh, cutting from scene to scene and, and story to story. And I couldn't figure out what, why were we doing this? And then he hits her and I'm like, okay, now I understand why there was this need to intercut it that way. But man, was it rough. And that really kind of turned me off for a little while with the film. But then it just, it really keeps its energy up and it finds its humor and it stays there really effectively. I was just really impressed with the level of it. And yes, there's some 80s stuff in here, the some of the sex jokes, because my God, Steve Martin clearly just needed more sex in the 80s. Oh, um, and they were, and some of them were just not tasteful anymore, right? Cover oh, her yeah. breasts. I'm a man. Yes. Oh God, right. I you know, and you know, some of the the smarts that the 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 sophistication, like his his uh, poetry, uh, the collected poems of John Lillison, <laughs> I think, are a riot. Of course, what we get in this uh, in the movie are the only two known poems of John Lillison uh, in Dillman's Grove and Pointy Birds. Yeah, and I I think is it I think it's ju- is it just Pointy Birds that shows up again in L.A. Story or or does he do in Dillman's Grove too? Um, uh, I, I'm pretty I sure it's just Pointy Birds. Um, yeah, oh, yeah, Pointy Birds, oh Pointy Pointy, anoint my head, uh, anointy anointy. <laughs> None could ever replace her visage until your face brought thoughts of kissage. <laughs> I love I, that. It's like poetry humor. I think it's wonderful. And that shows I, I just as goofy as he is, you can't quite uh, you can't quite hide um, what's what's going on in, in Martin's brain. I think that's uh, this. This is his humor right here for for I, I think what he grows into. Um, what's funny is I actually used O Pointy Birds at a when I was the best man in my friend's wedding. <laughs> and that was that was my uh, opening line to my uh, to my toast <laughs> before I pulled out the quote real <laughs> real speech. But I did do that, which was pretty great. And then somebody came up to me and was like, oh, great little bit from uh, from Man with Two Brains. I'm like, oh, no, it was from L.A. Story without realizing that and it then was you done fought. here first. 
And then, <laughs> then we threw down. <laughs> well, uh, it's it's great. It, it's great stuff and great. Um, uh, it's just very funny the way he does it, in spite of the dated uh, sex jokes. Um, you know, I think we get a lot from Kathleen Turner. She was coming off of Body Heat, and she said that you know I there, I, I got a lot of offers. Uh, but I just really wanted something different. And I had this feeling that if she said, if, if I was really brave, I could do something really fun with this, with this movie and with this part. And, and I have to say, I think she did. I think she was delightful in here to, to watch Kathleen Turner, uh, you know, to, to watch her turn as Steve Martin falls in love with a brain, um, is, uh, I I think a a really nice turn on that character. And, and I had a lot of fun. Well, also, I think it plays well for her coming right off of Body Heat, as you just said, where it does feel like with such a broad comedy tone after something that had such a great noir feel where she was definitely kind of a femme fatale type of character in that film. Mm-hmm. And then to have her doing essentially the same thing, but kind of it, it becomes like this parody slash homage, which we talked about before in mm-hmm. in how Martin was doing that with Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. And, and here we have Kathleen Turner really kind of playing that up in this film based on her previous film in a film that is kind of another uh, homage slash parody that Martin and Reiner are doing with kind of the the mad scientist genre, which I think is uh, it's fun. I like that she's kind of going whole hog with this one. It's interesting, too, when you look at these genre homage films, right? What do you think it is that's so appealing about these movies for these guys to want to go back to the well and and try it again after Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid? This one, I think, is less risky. It it does less kind of um, I would say artistically creatively than Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. It was which had I think a much more sort of courageous um, creative premise. Uh, the the act of building a story around editing in all these other films and putting these characters together I think is that it's it was more bold than this sort of broad kind of slapstick um, slapsticky sort of comedy. But it is kind of going back to the well. Um, what do you think was so appealing for them? I think that's kind of you know a question that a lot of uh, film fans have been talking about lately. We've been certainly chatting about it in our back channels and, and well all over our Discord group. Uh, conversations about you know remakes and retreads and and mm-hmm. why are people kind of you know why is there this need these days to kind of remake everything and kind of just the sequel farm and the remake farm and that's where we are. And I think that that what that's always been going on. I think. People find safety in doing stuff that's familiar. And I think that especially for comedians, taking something that they love and kind of putting that comedy twist on it, I think certainly is something that uh, has just been around forever. And just, you know, you have that connection to the past through the older stories, but here you are doing it in a in kind of a different way. And I think it gives it some life. And I mean, it's tricky to kind of come into this particular type and i have a hard time saying it's as strong an homage as something like young young uh, frankenstein which mm-hmm. is very much going to say young einstein like totally not the right one very different yeah <laughs> very different movie um but young frankenstein is 
a very strong one that I think works much better as kind of the parody and homage. This one just feels a little more like the parody. You know, I don't know if it's as much an homage, but I do think they're clearly having fun playing with some of the types that kind of go along with it and everything. So I don't know. I, I But I guess it's a question that is worth talking about in our big questions. Is this is this more than just a return to form with what he's doing in the jerk, uh, or is is it clear that having kind of tried a few different things in his previous works that that Martin is really trying to do different things uh, with this film and he like took what he learned from Pennies from Heaven and from Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid and and has kind of pulled some stuff into this one. That's an interesting question. Like, what would be the thing? that he pulls from a movie like Pennies from Heaven that you see reflected in this one? I guess I don't think that I see anything from that particular film. Um, I'm just, I'm wondering if there's, um, if there's a problem with that or if it's something that, you know, we're going to see later in his career, not necessarily in this series that we're doing, but we will see Martin having used that as an opportunity to tap into some more dramatic roles to try that later when he's working with David Mamet or on some of the other mm -hmm. uh, films that we've discussed, like Leap of Faith. Although it's interesting, I think he would, I, I would say that uh, there are moments that, that where I think Steve Martin is really exercising the the act of um, of creating these major sort of conflicts between uh, elements that provide humor, like w just the whole premise of lip syncing the old timey songs and making, you know, the old surly bank manager sound like Betty Boop in the process is one of those sort of exercises in creating conflict that that is humorous. You don't expect that he's going to do that. You don't expect the surly bank manager to, in the process, kiss him uh, across the table like those things, I think, create some some funny humor. You don't expect uh, some of those things in this movie either. You don't expect them to lean in so heavily on, um, you know, the the mad scientist library and uh, or laboratory library and <laughs> then discover that it's actually uh, in a high rise apartment complex. Right. That's creating an, an, ex a, an example of sort of visual conflict that that I think um, actually works so well. And um you know, the ultimate caper, right? The fact that the the sort of BC story in this thing is a, there's a killer on the loose. It's kind of a Jack the Ripper story. And um, that it turns out that it was foreshadowed earlier in the film that the, the big bad is, you know, the prince of late night Merv Griffin. Um, <laughs> and so I, th I think that's... Uh, I think that's a, another one of those exercises in in creating fun conflicts that he just is getting really, really good at. Yeah, and I think that's definitely clear. Uh, I think that by this point, we're getting a sense that he has found ways to to kind of play up the the those moments, the absurd and the uh, and the kind of the the parody moments, and does it in a way that that works and kind of keeps, as you said, kind of keeps going at it over and over again, uh, past the point of stupidity around the horn to yeah. the point where it's funny again. And I yeah. think that that does happen frequently here. Are there still issues? Yeah, I mean, there's still some stuff that's like, it doesn't work as much now, like when he's, you know, uh, like you said, when he's kind of going crazy at the end and turning into Igor and he's like, 
the machine is like turned into a giant pinball machine and he's bouncing around the inside. I mean, there's some stuff. That's like, eh. What happens there? What happens to the to the like it's got the movie goes up to a certain point and then and then it just turns into a different movie. It is it's uh, and it's not alone. It's one of these movies that just feels like they're just throwing in the towel. Uh, and and I just it is it goes comes off the rails and i i wonder if that is a if that's a statement of the genre if it's a, if it's one well, of the the tropes of the of the field i well i think there's some of that because obviously the whole igor element with brains and everything and and kind of the the mad scientist tone i think that's all there because of that i think that it they're fitting it into the times with the rise of video games at the time and the fact that uh doctor um what's his name dr necessitor another great doctor name uh played by david warner he built his machine with some components from video games and so i think that like those elements just fit like because this is uh the 19 uh, what is it 1983 when this came out Mm -hmm. and it's very relevant and timely to everything going on with video games at the moment and so i think there are those things in here that um, that dated a little bit because of the need to kind of tap into exactly what's happening at the moment. But um, well, I, I, it's too much. The physical stuff at the end, it's too much for me. When he goes, when he just completely goes daffy, um, uh, and I, I'm no longer chuckling along with it. But I'll tell you the physical bit that I do get a nice chuckle out of is the, uh, uh, you know, we don't have our battering ram. Ask the neighbor and the neighbor has, a, you know, 12th <laughs> century battering ram that they loan. You'll give it back. Mm-hmm. Yes, we'll give it back. And then they go through the paper wall and fall out. Where do they fall, Andy? Yep, right. Into the swimming pool. Yeah, that was really a, a kind of, I guess, a weird trope that, I mean, who'd have thought that you know in the world of stunts i guess they also had the tropes the things that they would do frequently because they'd practiced it and they would do it and so they would just keep throwing it into movies where people fall out of a high hotel or apartment building floor and land in the swimming pool below i uh i see a sat mat list option coming up <laughs> yeah yeah uh, I, I absolutely uh, agree you know there are so many i'm just looking at the list of Films. And the most of them are just it's here are the hundred best swimming pool scenes. So we're going to have to do some oh. digging for Satmat to get the, yeah. the high rise ones. Um, that's that's a juicy list. I bet there's there's more than we know. Yeah. The, the the TV trope, the rule of pool, as they call it, a.k.a. the law of inevitable immersion. <laughs> it is Chekhov's gun of the 80s. They actually say a form of Chekhov's gun. Oh, nice. <laughs> Frequently enforced, at least in live action material, by the aggravations and hazards of filming near a pool um, that all add up to avoiding using a set with a pool unless the script demands a pool. Um, I, a lot of it is just, you know, people in pools, like you said. But uh, I, I bet if we go through this, we'd find uh, buildings or where you fall out of it and land in it. Yeah. Lethal weapon. Anyway, back to the rest of the show. <laughs> 
I think the problem that I had with all of the craziness at the end is that uh, is that I just didn't buy his character, right? His character, this neurosurgeon. And I know that's another, like I can, intellectually, I can approach it and I can say, okay, he's he is this neurosurgeon and it's going to be funny when we show this other side of him, like how far he can fall. Uh, and I just I just felt like I it the whole reason they had to take him down that road was to create an opportunity for injury to put him in a hotel so we could have a reunion between him and a surprise for the audience that the brain transformation actually took. And now we have an overweight Kathleen Turner reunion scene. And and I'm just not sure that was I, I don't think we needed quite as much, you know, buffoonery of the character to get us there. Well, it's a tricky thing because I I appreciate that in kind of a, a film that is playing with the the ideas of the mad scientist genre, you want to kind of make your scientist go a little mad. And so I, I can definitely see that there is that. Like when it comes through the machine and comes out the other side, his hair is all crazy. I am totally uh, stepping on the whole point of the homage to the mad scientist. Maybe what I'm saying is I don't really like mad scientist movies that much. Uh, oh, see, I love mad scientist movies. But I know, I, me too. I, I think what the problem is, is that some of the elements there, and again, maybe this goes to what I was uh, trying to say earlier, when it turns into him like bouncing around like a pinball in this machine, all of a sudden it's not that funny. But yes. when it's when it's him kind of, the madness is driving him to just kind of do the science. I don't mind that. It's it's just some of the the dumb shtick that comes with it because they were writing some elements in that just end up not working very well. Well, and that's why I think we agree that that um, uh, Young Frankenstein works so well because the the shtick is well placed and it's not uh, it, it's not at the expense of the characters that they're creating or that they've created. Right? I mean, we get some sideshow shtick, you know, uh, we get the song and dance bit, uh, but. At no point does it feel like they completely lose control of the movie. That's something that I think Mel Brooks was very smart with in that film. He didn't feel the need to kind of bring in stuff that felt uh, like in this film with the pinball again, that felt of its time uh, that it was getting made. And I think young, young Frankenstein, he really worked on making that feel kind of like a Frankenstein film. And maybe right. that's part of the benefit of that story is that it takes place in the old time when Frankenstein likely would have been happening as opposed to this story, yeah. which is present day. And so because of that, they did feel the need to kind of tie it into some of the modern things that just make it make it dated. Okay, I'm, I'll agree with you on that. Then I think we should talk about the names in the movie because um, speaking of things that are funny... I, uh, the fact that his name is Dr. Hafer, and yes. it's a thing where people can't figure out how to say it. And then he ends up meeting uh, Miss Melmahay. And uh, I don't, I, the, the whole nature of that was so absurd that, uh, but it kept going. And, and I, I loved that stuff. It was so funny. And it just, I, I, because yeah. he's such a good straight man for that, for that he kind really of is. material. He is right. so good at that. I went back into Apple Music uh, tonight. They've got the, his earliest um, 
comedy albums, uh, Wild and Crazy Guy, Let's Get Small. Uh, there's another one. And, it, you know, listening to him take, you know, the young Steve Martin uh, doing the voices, the Wild and Crazy Guy voices, the I'm in, I, I went to college voices like these. These are the things that are kind of the precursors to this bit of humor and how funny he is selling the fact that he can both say and spell, oh, Melma, hey, <laughs> is it's just it, it's perfect. It's right where, you know, it's it's a centerpiece of Steve Martin comedy. Yeah, it, it uh, just was so smart and fun listening to him say it so perfectly yeah. and listening to Miss uh, Melma Hay. Like it, it was a great way to kind of connect these two characters right away. The fact that she could pronounce it perfectly and could spell it. And mm -hmm. likewise uh, with him and her, it was just, it was so cute and it made for a really cute meet cute when he meets this brain and they can talk and recognize how to spell each other's names. The, the trivia, as far as it goes, that uh, Hafer uh, was Hafer the word bringer abbreviated as the word bringer in the adventures of Superman comic book series spelled the same way. It was Dr. Michael Huffer. And it was also used rightly as one of as Steve Martin's call to uh to what was he doing? He was looking the for the invisible bush. swordsman, was, the singing bush. Yeah, the invisible bush. Was, yeah, they're summoning the invisible swordman. Swordsman. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And he, he says Huffar. He's the whatever. Yeah, in uh, the three amigos. Brilliant. It is great. I, I uh, want to I, uh, see if he's dropped any other little things like that. I'm, sh I'm sure. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure. Um, what about Lone Ranger and Tonto? Did I miss something there? I don't know why they kept appearing, but just like the cat kept appearing every time that we went into the surgery uh, theater and he's like, get that cat out of here. There yeah. was also like a Lone Ranger and Tonto watching. And I was like, what's up with them? And I was like, is it Lone Ranger and Tonto or is it like the the uh the um uh oh gosh well, i'm blanking on their names the village people oh. or like but then i was like i don't see anyone else from kind of the village people line up there it always seemed to be kind of a cowboy and uh an indian as you would say back in the day um it just it was like such an odd thing to throw in there but i was like okay I, is it just something that that they thought was funny at the time that let's just throw in the Lone Ranger and Tonto also in the uh, in the surgery theater watching us? Wow. I don't know. Very yeah, weird. I, yeah, I what's really I feel terrible. I didn't notice at all. The it's the sort of thing and, that you'd probably notice when you did this uh, broke yeah. this film down minute by minute. <laughs> is that what we're going to do? That's next. <laughs> New side project. Uh, um. My uh, my very uh, like I, I just the bit that I listened to uh, again and again when I first saw this movie was the um, the little girl uh, right in the yes. beginning, four year old girl. And uh, she's in this scene and and uh, Steve Martin hits Kathleen Turner with his car and gets out of the car and sees this little girl and says, hey, little girl, I need you to do me a favor and then proceeds to give her the most extraordinary set of instructions and phone numbers and uh, people and medical diagnoses and things to do at the hospital, get the different ORs and such and so. And the little girl, the gag is the little girl then repeats it and she repeats it word for word. And uh, so Carl Reiner says uh, in a story, he says, you know, 
I thought we're going to get ready for the whole day because the little girl can't read like she's not memorizing a script. She's four years old and we can't do cue cards like we've got nothing but her memory. And so I was ready. I was ready to book the day. It's just we're just going to do it. And she did it in one take. Did he put the camera on her nice and close and did it in one? And it was the most fantastic uh, bit of comedy in the movie for me. It, it is fantastic. And then he tells the story the way it ends uh, is uh, uh, 30 years later, he's in a grocery store and this woman walks up to him and says, hey, I, you, I know we know each other. And he says, I'm afraid we don't know each other. Remember the girl in two brains? That was me. She actually grew up and Crazy. had a life and ended up in a grocery store. So that's crazy. Funny, funny little bit of trivia. Very. It's a great bit. It's yeah. a great bit. I and it's a really funny moment. The way that it plays out. It's one of those things where you yeah. you're like, yeah, this isn't going to go well. And then, of course, he recites the whole thing back, which is fantastic. Yeah. Let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about Kathleen Turner's character here. OK. What's going on with this character? What do you mean? I mean, how many layers of duplicity do we have to unravel to fully understand the character of Dolores Benedict. I think you know what I'm getting at here. I'm not sure. Let me sure. tell you what we know. Okay. We know that she has, uh, she's married before and she has driven her husband's, I'm assuming husband's, but she, we know she at least has driven one of her husband's to heart attack, uh, trying to get his money, doesn't get the money. She goes and moves on to the next. She is the quintessential gold digger, right? Mm -hmm. Stereotype yes. of right. the gold digger. She meets Steve Martin. She's doing her thing again. Right. So all we know so far is that she is trying. She marries for money and tries to kill off her husbands. And that's what she does. But she's in a fight with Steve Martin, with Martin's character, obviously, Dr. Michael Huffer. And at one point she says, ow, my balls. Right. What is she referring to there? I just took it as one of those funny things where anyone who gets kicked in that place was going to react that way. And I, I don't know if they were trying to say that, you know, she's actually a man or she's going through sex change operation. I didn't read it that way. I don't know if I'm supposed to. I just thought it was something that was like, I was trying to think, is that something How else from the 80s? How do you not read it? Oh, right. The 80s. You're right, Andy. That's what I, I always said that in the 80s. Out my balls. <laughs> that was what I, I, you're right. I'll look past it. <laughs> so I got a flat tire on my car. Oh, my balls. All I'm right. sure that was it. All right. Uh, you're right. I should just not think so seriously about this. It's just, it, well, it's just, it's one of those weird things. I don't think that, I don't know. I don't know why it's in there. I just, it's just funny. It, it is. Ends so up being let's just funny. say if you do, it is funny. I'm not lying. I'm not, I'm not arguing that with you. I'm just saying that it is worth thinking about maybe for an instant that in fact, what would that, what would it be like? Would it be funnier if in fact they're, they're trying to say that, uh, that Dolores used to be a man and, went through a sex change operation in order to become the consummate gold digger. That's a lot of work. And if, I mean, <laughs> if, if they're going down that road, they obviously didn't put enough in the movie to really get us there. So that's why I, there was I, a, there's you know. a scene maybe that was cut. It described, it was the dead man. Don't wear plaid. Uh, explanatory when title he, scene. When he finally gets her into the bedroom at the end to have sex. Yeah. And realizes, yeah. Oh, so. In fact, it's <laughs> <laughs> very different. Uh, it's, yes. it's pretty different. Um, so, uh, but in general, we like Kathleen Turner. I think she did great. 
She she's uh, great. I went down a I went down a Roger Rabbit hole, Andy. Yeah, I, I did sure there. did. Uh, so she goes into this. Uh, uh, the Kathleen Turner in this movie goes into the uh, gun store. She's buying a gun and she says, "Give me a pack of Dum Dums." And that is she. They also have Dum Dum bullets in Roger Rabbit. And I'm thinking, isn't that funny? There's a cute tie-in to bullets between Roger Rabbit and this movie. Isn't that cute? And it turns out I am so so wrong uh, because Dum Dum bullets have been around since the 1890s. Had you ever heard of Dum Dum bullets, Andy? I feel like I have. Why would you possibly have heard of Dum Dum Bullets? I don't what know. I just feel like it's one, of the, <laughs> it's one of those things. You pick these things up. It's a cool. Well, now you're picking it up again. You take a bullet and it's a copper jacketed bullet and you have the lead exposed and you cut a cross hatch in it. That's that's how you do it. And then you put it in the gun. And when you shoot it, it goes into the target and then it goes and it explodes. It's kind of the uh, that's the the uh, poor man's substitute to bullets that are actually designed to do that. And there are bullets that are designed to do that that have been outlawed by the Geneva Accords uh, because they are inhumane and create way too much damage when they go into bodies. So they're as very, if, very as bad. As if getting a shot by a bullet isn't bad enough. <laughs> That's right. They're going to, they're literally adding injury to injury and uh, making it much, much worse. And so that is a dumb, dumb bullet. And that's a thing that I'm going to pretend you didn't know before now. I think it's funny that they uh, they went so far as to say this is a line too far. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, not not the bullet in the first place. That's right. okay. We can live and, with that. Well, and even <laughs> in the movie, vote. the guy selling the bullet says those are illegal, and her response: "So is killing your husband." Right? Like they've just <laughs> given up. They've yeah. just given up. Uh, so yes, yes, that yes. was that was my bit of learning tonight. You're welcome, dum dum. Thank bullets. you. Thank mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. The more you know. I learned that uh, that Scum Queen, which is what uh, 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 our wonderful doctor uh, calls Dolores when he throws her out of his house and kind right. of throws her into the mud. He calls her a Scum Queen and uh, tosses her, which I thought was uh, you know it was fun. And there's something about Scum Queen that I thought was um, uh, I don't know clever, and I, it was a thing, and I don't didn't realize that this movie kind of turned the phrase uh, scum queen into something that people would say. And actually, poor Kathleen Turner, she uh, was referred to as the scum queen in articles for a while after this movie. I think in love, but still she became kind of the scum queen. The scum queen. That's the saddest. Isn't that sad? I also learned, this is a strange little bit, and maybe this will transition us to Carl Reiner, that Steve Martin's first choice to direct this, apparently, was actually David Cronenberg. Speaking of a previous <laughs> uh, film uh, uh, series that we did. What? Yeah, he, he saw Scanners, apparently, and thought that David Cronenberg would be great to direct this because he could put a, a fun, weird twist on this. Um, but Cronenberg was busy on Videodrome and wasn't uh, interested in doing a comedy, so he turned it down. Quel surprise. <laughs> <laughs> David Cronenberg was not interested in doing a comedy. I I can't even imagine what these brains would have looked like. <laughs> they would be crawling across the countertop. Exactly. Ah, oh, what I would give mm. for a Cronenberg two brains plushie doll. <laughs> like a brain with a skin covered fist coming out of it. And definitely it's got tumor babies. 
Somebody needs to get on that. We can sell it on our uh, <laughs> on our shopping page. In- intern. Oh my gosh! Wow. Uh-huh. I'm going to lock but, that up. But Carl Reiner, let's let's talk about Carl Reiner for a minute because this is mm-hmm. now their third collaboration after the Jerk and Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. I I know we've had some complaints about Carl Reiner in the in the past, uh, both of the past films because there are elements that feel very much like the kind of the older world comedy where he came from. Do you run into that with this one, or do you feel like he kind of is, uh, as a director, kind of moving um, past that stuff as well? I think overall, I, I think they, what this movie demonstrates for me is that they are much better, they they continue to improve at working together, and their comedy stylings, I think, are are mesh pretty well in this movie, that um, it is overall pretty consistent, it doesn't, it it keeps me laughing page after page, it doesn't by you know for the most part it's not um it's not overdone and um so it it just feels like a good pairing tough news about george guype though yeah george guype co-wrote the script uh with carl reiner and steve martin and uh their second collaboration together after dead men don't wear plaid george guype uh, was a he wrote for magazines he was an author um he wrote novelizations like um the novelizations that he wrote melvin and howard Resurrection, Gremlins, Back to the Future, and Explorers. Uh, those definitely, those last three were ones that I likely read around the time. Mm-hmm. He, uh, unfortunately, a few years after this, in 1986, he was stung by a bee, and he had a, a obviously deadly um, allergic reaction, and he died. So, very, very tragic way to uh, to die at the age of 53. Uh, that is unfortunate, but I'm curious now what you think. I mean, in in terms of the the uh, comedy stylings, Carl Reiner's uh, contributions here, he put his mother in it. That's something. Oh, really? I wasn't even paying attention to that. Yeah. Knowing where Steve Martin would go with films later that weren't necessarily Carl Reiner projects, but stuff like Three Amigos, that is one that I definitely also love. I do kind of feel a little bit that uh, some of the kind of the absurd stuff that we have at the ending does likely come a little bit from Steve Martin. Um, You know, I think that he is one of those people who I think has his comedy writing highs and lows. And for every dumb bit that, uh, that we end up getting, I think there's also a really smart bit that comes out of him. And so I have a hard time pinning the kind of the silliness at the end to strictly Carl Reiner. Well, maybe it's just that, you know, what I I feel like they get better over the years at metering the Daffy stuff in favor of a little bit more heart. You know, um, I think that's definitely true. I mean, they've this is their third time working together. I think that they they are at a place in their working relationship where they're able to figure out a little bit more about what's working and what's not. You know, yeah. Um, so I, you know, I really like it. I think you know, um, Carl Reiner. Obviously, I I really like Carl Reiner's uh, Carl Reiner's work. He's not in it. Uh, we don't get any cross-eyed uh, goofiness, uh, but we do. As I said, we do get uh, his mom in it. She's the tourist in the elevator, and she says, "What are you doing here?" And then passes out. So um, passes out. Well, she's murdered. She's dugged. Dugged. She's dugged. She's drugged. Drugged and killed in the elevator. 
Uh, there are some fun, just a, the hot list of fun um, performers who are in here. Again, James Cromwell is is in here briefly, which is fun as the realtor. He, I like him a yeah, lot. That's great. Uh, um, we get some, you know, George Firth and Peter Hobbs and Earl Bowen as Felix Conrad, uh, Dr. Conrad, uh, who is um, wonderful uh, and brief. And, you know, it just makes me think of Terminator. What a horrible, horrible person he is there. <laughs> I think that we we can't uh, really kind of continue without just uh, revealing the big surprise that uh, Sissy Spacek, of all people, <laughs> is loaning her voice as Anne Melmahay. And uh, you know, I totally recognized her, but I couldn't place who it was. I'm like, I know that voice. Who is it? Yeah. Turns out it's Sissy Spacek, and I should have been able to tell. So she does a great job as uh, Mel Mahay, and I just, uh, I, I don't know. I just love it. It's, it just is such a sweet little voice that she provides for the character. Worked really nicely. The, the challenges I had, I'm with the production, I'm with you. I think, you know, I, I, Michael Chapman does the, the camera, which is, largely fine i think the challenge i have is in editing because you mentioned the the beginning which is a mess and there are some places in when he goes off to search for the body that are equally messy like it just is very sloppily cut together through major sections in the movie and it's jarring and you lose sense of time and place and it just it it breaks some fundamentals uh, of cutting film together that I, I think were super distracting. Yeah, that was a little frustrating. Um, you know, I mean, you mentioned uh, the cinematography, Michael Chapman, is great. And I think that, I I mean, he's just one of those great cinematographers that does, creates beautiful images. Um, and we've talked about other things that he's done. But when you're pairing that with some of the comedy editing that that we struggle with a little bit it it makes it just not feel as special across the board i think and i i mean bud mullen edited uh dead men don't wear plaid before this he edited the yeah. jerk i mean he has been around doing a lot of comedy that i mean you look at kind of his list of comedy that he had done there's a lot. I mean, he goes on to do the next film we'll be talking, or not the next Carl Reiner collaboration, All of Me, um, Man, with, Man with One Red Shoe, one of my um, guilty pleasures, um, Police Academy 3, Summer Rental, Summer School. I mean, you just look well, through he's his been, stuff. He has dozens and dozens and dozens of credits before he gets to this movie. And it yeah, makes you right. think, like, what what happened? uh to to this film like what hands what fingers got into the mix and and let some of these things slip by because it 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 doesn't work i mean you know then he goes on and does police academy 3 back in training which it makes is, me wonder if it was just like if the script was a little sloppier and it was harder to kind of pin down how to cut it together or if they were just um, rushing through production and they didn't just have kind the of, material that they yeah, thought they were going right. to have. Yeah. It, yeah. it makes me wonder where the issues arose. Obviously, Bud Molin had done plenty of comedy stuff that uh, some of it worked a lot better. And so why in this particular case do we find ourselves struggling so much with it? I just don't know. I don't know either. What do you think of the music, Joel Gold? Joel Goldsmith, Goldsmith, <laughs> and it's Goldsmith, Andy. It's another Goldsmith. It's not Jerry, but it is Joel. And it is a J. It is a J. Not one of my ten Js, but um, you know I do like Joel Gold Goldsmith. Still, it's it's a tricky name, Joel Goldsmith. 
Um, yes. and he is, uh, he is the, uh, one of the, uh, kids from the Jerry. oldest. Yeah. The oldest and, uh, you know, he has, we've talked about him before cause, mm-hmm. um, Star Trek. Trying, yeah. Star Trek. That's right. Um, yeah. I I find myself liking some of his stuff. In this particular case, I think that he's doing a good job of creating kind of just that comedy music. Yes, it does feel a little dated. It's pretty 80s. But largely, I'm like, you know what? It's It works in context of the movie, and it's fun, and it's zippy, and I end up having a good time with it. Nothing extraordinary, uh, but it is he is a goldsmith, so he gets a name drop. Uh, can we just back up to the cast real quick? Sure. Did we mention Merv Griffin as yeah. the elevator killer? And, and and what a fine bit of comedy that is. And I have to say my favorite bit of that whole thing is the fact that the film ends with with text on the screen saying Merv Griffin is still large. <laughs> if you spot him, please report him. Because he didn't to, turn himself to your in. Like theater, to your theater operator, <laughs> like to the theater <laughs> manager. <laughs> don't don't call the authorities. <laughs> uh, I I He's know still I'm at large. just sidetracking things, but I loved that bit. What a funny yeah. little way to end the movie. That's a good chuckle. Yes. Uh, how to do at the box office, Andy? Well, Reiner and Martin's third outing cost 10.1 million, or just under 26 million in today's dollars. The movie opened June 3rd, 1983, opposite Psycho 2 and the movie that I was actually watching, War Games. With Return of the Jedi still in theaters and the stiff competition of the new releases, this movie could not top the number four spot for its opening weekend. Still, it did manage to make a profit, earning $10.4 million at the box office, or $26.6 million in today's dollars. That barely gives it a profit, landing an adjusted profit per finished minute of $7,237. Wow, seven thousand two hundred thirty-seven dollars. It's not scraping a lot. by in, yeah. in the profit realm, yeah. Which is That's really surprising. One. Like, yeah, that this one, uh, maybe I don't know. I wonder if it speaks to the fact that audiences just weren't sure what to expect from Steve Martin anymore because his last two movies were so different. Very interesting. You know, I think this movie it 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 puts a nice little. Uh, a cherry on top of some of the goofy comedies uh, and the more explorational, experimental comedies that Steve Martin did early on. And uh, I'm it, this movie, I think, may, marks a, a sort of pivot in our journey with Steve Martin. And I think I think things are going to change uh, with a little bit more consistency going forward. My memory has served me not at all so far, though. So <laughs> your mileage may vary. Right, right. Well, I uh, I had not uh, seen the next film, and I have seen the last film. So I'm curious to see how things shake out as we go forward to see, you know, what I end up thinking of kind of Steve Martin's early career. I will say, but this one, I really loved. Like this one, I had such a fun time with. So I really, it really took me by surprise. I'm glad I finally got around to to actually watching this one. Excellent. I am glad uh, that you had that experience with it, which will make it that much more interesting, Andy, when we rank it. Ooh, let's do it. Uh, head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, and you'll see all the movies that we've talked about on this very show. Uh, if you wave your magic wand, you might just be able to sign up for an account. And then you could click on the word Flickchart in our show notes, which would take you to this movie in your Flickchart account where you could add it to your list and see how it stacks up against ours. 
All right, first up, The Man with Two Brains or A Star is Born, the 1937 original. Man with Two Brains. Man with Two Brains. Yes. Look at that. The Man with Two Brains or The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Man with Two two Brains. brains. Wow. The Man with Two Brains. I know. Or Rocky. Oh, Rocky. Sorry. Yeah, Rocky. The Man with Two Brains or The Black Stallion. Oh, I got to go with The Black Stallion. Black Stallion. We talked about that movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's part of our Melissa Matheson series. All right, that oh, was a dear. great series. I should go listen to that. <laughs> the Man with Two Brains or Creed 2. Creed 2. Oh, wow, I got a Creed 2. Yep. The Man with Two Brains. I had that same battle in my own flick chart. The Man with Two Brains or Live Free or Die Hard. I got to go Live Free. Yeah, it's Live Free for me. The Man with Two Brains or Seven Samurai. <laughs> <laughs> For crying out loud. Oh, wow. Really? <laughs> this is such a funny... I love it when Flickchart throws things like this together. <laughs> um, Seven Samurai. Yeah, Seven Samurai. Just to so say it out loud. <laughs> right. The Man with Two Brains or, wow, a lot of Rocky this round. Rocky Balboa. Rocky Balboa. I'll say Rocky Balboa as well. The Man with Two Brains or Raise the Red Lantern. Raise the Red Lantern. Raise the Red Lantern for me too. Well, it didn't crack the top 100, but it did pretty well for itself. The Man with Two Brains landed in spot 108 on our chart. 108 out of 429. Fantastic. Uh, And surprising. It's surprising just how well we agree uh, on yeah. That movie it, no, it strikes no me. Roshan How did it do on your on your personal chart? It actually it did really well. It did better on my own personal chart. It ended up landing at five hundred thirty out of forty two forty, which is about an eighty eight percent. Mine uh, is very fresh because I just did it just now. Uh, ended up at three forty five out of fourteen eighteen, which is a seventy six percent. What did you say yours was? Eighty eight percent. Eighty eight. It's better on yours, Andy. It's. I. It really was a surprise for me. Wow. All right. Well, if I'm to go by the algorithm over at uh, letterbox.com slash the next reel, this should be a four, a solid four star movie for me. And I'm going to go with that. Feels like a good four star. Editing problems. There's a star. Yep. Stupid, yeah, it had- stupid sexism. There's a star. It did it's have its that. issues, but uh, I am the same. Uh, four stars and a heart for me. I really had a lot of fun with this. This is definitely something I would watch again. We didn't already do a podcast together. I would invite you to do a podcast with me. <laughs> hey, look at that. Where do we go from here? We're going to be uh, doing the other non um non-Carl Reiner collaboration with Steve Martin in this particular series. We're going to be looking at 1984's The Lonely Guy, directed by Arthur Hiller. We like some Arthur Hiller, and I do love me some Charles Grodin. How well does this stand up? (laughs) It will be, uh, this is one that I only just watched for the first first time. So I'm very curious to, to chat about it with you next time. Man, you hold those cards so close to your chest. Nothing. I got nothing from you. When the movie ends, our conversation begins.
Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. It is prone to givingeth. And uh, I went south. You went south as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Not as south as you went. I went deep south. <laughs> uh, I, Master Luke, Master Luke says, he came in in 2014, and he says... I thought he died a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Right? He says... I'm really confused. Silly. It is very silly, with humor of a child, but not content suitable for children. Raunchy but not particularly funny, he says. Master what Luke. kind of accent was that for Master Luke? I don't know, but it's not, it is, how do you, how else do you do? It is very silly with humor of a child. Like, of course, that is like, I guess verging just on a it. young Werner Herzog. <laughs> that was very silly. You are a coward. <laughs> Uh, well, I've got a two-star by Jimmy Verona, who really is upset by the okay. title. Says, Who's Jimmy Verona? What are you going to give me with Jimmy Verona? <laughs> that title. name is screaming for a character bit. Come on. Oh, uh, well, I don't want to go the obvious route. Um, <laughs> That's all we do here. is the obvious route, yeah. Andy. That's our know, stock and trade. Right? This movie just isn't all that funny. I was really disappointed, being a big Steve Martin fan. But this came across as a bad version of All of Me, a hilarious movie. There are a few good gags in the movie, but everything else just seems so contrived and not all that funny. It's a good concept and a bad movie. Rent it if you must, but it's not that great. And the cover of the movie makes you think Steve Martin has two brains. He doesn't. Not worth it. Okay, from now on, you are Jimmy Verona every time, and I am German brutalist Werner Herzog at age 18. That's going to be it every time from now on. Every time. All right. Thanks, Amazon. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Okay, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season nine, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. Ooh, this should be fun. <laughs> we're starting with the big series, Robin Hood. <laughs> well, I mean, aren't they all based on some Robin Hood story in one way or another? Yes, but any idea which specifically? Uh, well, I'd say uh, Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, the silent one, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, that terrible 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood, they're all based on, I would say, probably the same standard tale. Robin and Marion, I would say, is probably based on a different take. Uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, too. Oh, God, I can't believe I forgot that one. Okay, how about Spike Lee? Uh, aren't they all original? No, not one we covered this season. It's a biopic. Oh, Black Klansman. 
can't believe I forgot that. We have covered so many great movies that all started as books. Books like The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Europa Europa, Spore, or Arsenic and Old Lace. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. 